Welcome to the IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast for couples who struggle with infertility and want to fulfill their dreams of becoming parents. In this podcast, you'll learn actionable strategies to deal with infertility from Dr. Michael Chapman, or Prof as he's affectionately known. Prof is the co-founder of IVF Australia and is a leading Australian infertility specialist who has helped over 3,000 couples realise their dreams of becoming parents. To access previous episodes packed with ideas, solutions and tips that actually work, head over to Dr Chapman's IVF podcast on iTunes. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 111 483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au. That first cry of a baby born after the long journey of IVF remains one of the most beautiful experiences in the world. As an obstetrician and an IVF specialist, I've had the privilege of experiencing this over many thousands of times in my long career, but I still remain moved by each baby's first cry. It signifies the end of a long journey and the beginning of a new life. This is Professor Michael Chapman, co-founder of IVF Australia and host of the IVF Journey podcast. Thanks for tuning in. To access all the previous episodes, head over to my website, www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. You'll also be able to find the various services that we provide at IVF Australia. Today I'm going to talk about laboratory extras and whether they make any difference to the outcomes. By extras I mean things in addition to basic IVF. So when IVF first started, what we were doing was collecting the eggs at the right time and then putting those eggs into a dish and then adding in 50 to 100,000 sperm and hoped that fertilisation would occur and embryos would grow. That probably still works in the majority of cases, but with success rates still only 35 to 40% in young women per embryo transfer. People have gone looking for things that might improve the success rates to see whether the 60% that fail might have got there if other things had been done to promote the creation of an embryo that was going to survive. So one of the first things, and we've talked about it before, is the injection of a single sperm into the egg. So rather than let nature pick out the right sperm at the right time, what we do in a laboratory is to take a single sperm and inject it into the egg. That way we hope the success rate will be good. But even that doesn't necessarily mean success. Indeed, only yesterday I had a lady that I collected 16 eggs from, and today the laboratory rang me to say, despite ICSI, we only got one fertilised. That probably reflects sperm quality, but it may reflect egg quality. So ICSI, however, from when there is poor male sperm, has changed the world in terms of men with fertility problems being able to help their wives conceive. 
In some countries, it's moved to be almost 100% ICSI. There are many people who believe that that's overuse of technology. In Australia, it runs at about 60%. And even here, there are critics of the extent to which it's used, because obviously 60% of infertility is not related to male factor. But that's a debate that we've had on a previous podcast. The other add-ons that have been used and are advocated in some clinics, particularly when there's been poor fertilisation or poor embryo development or failure of implantation over a number of cycles. The first, which only we at IVF Australia offer, which is to look at the eggs before we fertilise them. And what we can see using polarised light microscopy is the chromosome structure called the spindle just before fertilisation. And what we know is that if that's normally shaped, pregnancy rates are higher. And conversely, if it's abnormal in shape or absent, then pregnancy rates are extremely low. Now, we can't change that in that cycle, but at least we know a little bit more why there are cycles where there's poor embryo development and failed cycles. So that's one add-on, and we certainly do use that in cases where there's been recurrent failure. The next add-on that has gained some popularity 20 years ago but has never really proven to be of any advantage and that's called assisted hatching. So going back to physiology, what happens after fertilisation is that the cells multiply within the eggshell. The other name for the eggshell is the zona pellucida. And basically, like a chicken hatching out of an egg, that zona pellucida has to crack to let out the embryo to attach itself to the lining of the uterus. It was suggested that in some patients, the zona pellucida was either too thick or the processes of hatching out were abnormal and that that might impair pregnancy rates. So assisted hatching was suggested. This can either be done using chemicals, enzymes to break down the structure of the zona pellucida, or by cutting a hole in it with a laser. But as I said earlier, randomised controlled trials have not shown any benefit for this add-on. Unfortunately, when you're desperate after a number of attempts at, at IVF, People will try anything, and that's another add-on. The next add-on is something called Embryo Glue, which sounds a fantastic product because it's going to glue your embryo to the wall of the uterus. It's actually not a glue at all. It's actually an enzyme that breaks down the, the zona pellucida and <laughs> prepares it for the hatching process. Now, embryo glue has been studied scientifically, albeit most of the studies have been done by the company that makes it, so one is always slightly suspicious of the results. But a review of all the papers published on embryo glue suggests that there might be a slight benefit. So embryo glue is probably a positive add-on, but again, I really only use it in situations where I've been unsuccessful one or two times before. The other add-on in relation to trying to improve pregnancy rates is then to look at the lining of the womb. Now, 
The environment is obviously important for implantation. The first part of the environment is obviously the structure and the healthiness of the actual endometrium, the endometrium, the lining of the womb. Biopsy of the lining of the womb after multiple failures does turn up inflammation, endometritis, in about one in a hundred cases. And obviously that is an environment where implantation is unlikely. That uh, implantation can be improved, we believe, by giving antibiotics in that uncommon situation. The other things that can affect the endometrium perhaps are the immune cells within it. So another add-on is to check for the presence of natural killer cells and the population of cells that go along with the natural killer cells, the immune cells. And doing a biopsy of the lining of the womb and assessing the percentages of those cells present at a particular time of the cycle may give an indication of an immune reaction which is preventing implantation. No scientific evidence supports it, but anecdotally suppressing those immune cells using prednisolone, steroids, improves pregnancy rates. But I say again, there is no randomized control trial to prove that it works. So let's keep going with add-ons. The lining of the womb, it goes through quite a substantial change on a day-to-day -day basis from ovulation through to menstruation. And in particular, around seven days after ovulation, there's what is called the implantation window. The window is open at that point because the lining of the womb has all the structure and all the secretions of all the good chemicals that allow implantation to occur and nurture that pregnancy. But it is very day dependent. Now, if for some reason the day gets shifted, either because of the background hormone levels in the woman being too high too early or too low too late, the implantation window may move. And so when we put an embryo back, we're assuming that we are putting it back at the time of the implantation window. But if there is an asynchrony between the normal seven days post-ovulation in that the lining of the womb is actually matured two days earlier or alternatively it's delayed and it's two days late, that embryo will enter the uterus, look around and not see an open window. It can't implant. Now there is evidence that occurs in most patients as a random event, but there may be patients in which it's a recurring event. There have been various approaches to try and assess whether the implantation window is at the right time. That in receptivity of the lining of the womb can be assessed. Markers that have been used are basically the histopathology, looking at the cells and their structure. And that's accurate within a day or two. But to some extent, people might consider that old hat because that was discovered back in 1948. Obviously, we can't test that in the cycle that you're having the transfer because we disrupt the endometrium. So we do it in the cycle before. Does that reflect what's going to happen in the next cycle? Well, that's very debatable. The modern approach is to use gene technology and actually measure 
the expression of various genes at various points. And they do switch on and switch off during the menstrual cycle uh, in the lining of the womb. And by measuring those that have been switched on and those that have been switched off, we can work out those patterns that are associated with the implantation window. So you can have that sampling done in the cycle before the one you're going to have the embryo transferred and perhaps that shows a, ch a difference. And certainly there are companies around the world that are marketing this as a technique to be used in women who have been unsuccessful in having multiple transfers. Anecdotal evidence suggests that it may help, but randomised controlled trials have not been undertaken. There has been one which was undertaken, now some four years old, and interestingly the company that ran the project, who are the company that also sell the product, have not released the outcome of that study. So I am suspicious that perhaps the randomised study did not stand up to rigorous scientific investigation which is consistent with many, many of the add-ons that have been proposed over the years. The next lot of add-ons, oral medications, vitamins, enzymes, hormones, and really, again, the evidence is lacking. So beware of add-ons. Unfortunately, pregnancy is occurring after an embryo transfer to some extent are random events. Random means being like a dice. You roll the dice and you take your chance. The more times you roll the dice, the higher the chance you have of being pregnant. So my message is science keeps trying to prove pregnancy rates, but those add-ons which are being developed need to be proven scientifically before you take them on and spend significant money undertaking them. And don't forget that you can access all the previous episodes by going to our website www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. Thank you for listening to The IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast which helps couples negotiate their way through the IVF journey all the way to parenthood. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 111 483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au.